So if you have, have your Bibles, feel free to open with me. Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. It's Paul speaking. He said, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Good morning. My name is Glenn. For those of you who are visiting, uh, I'm uh, privileged most Sundays to be able to bring God's Word to you. Uh, you've already heard it read this morning, and we're going to dive in right away. But first, what I would like to do one more time is pray and ask God to and His Holy Spirit to not only be in the atmosphere, which we know He is, <laughs> He always is, but also that He would guide me, my words, and your hearts as you hear what God's put on my heart from this passage today. So let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and praise you for this day. Uh, Father, I thank you so much that in the midst of all of the, the chaos and uh, confusion in our world, uh, Father, that we can come here and we can worship you. Father, we're here intentionally um, because of you. You have drawn us here. And so, Father, I just, I just pray that today, more than anything, I pray that you would, you would use uh, my words, this passage, uh, the thoughts, but also, Lord, our own hearts and minds to hear directly from you today. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would do the work, uh, which you always do, but especially today, Lord, I, I pray that when we speak about truth, when we speak about freedom, when we speak about the gospel, I pray that you would just, uh, you would just really impress on our hearts how it has been preserved for centuries, millennia, and how important it is for us today to also preserve the integrity of the truth of the gospel. So I pray, Lord, that you would just bless us and bless these times in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So without getting into great detail, I, I've had a very interesting week, just been traveling to see my ailing mother and uh, try to support my sister and brother-in-law as they care for her on Salt Spring Island, and also like you probably, uh, watching what's going on in our world and so forth, and uh, in, in conversation with my sister and brother-in-law and others. I, I just kind of had this question all week on my mind and my heart, and, and the question is, how hopeful do you actually feel these days? How hopeful do you feel these days? Uh, I ask this because I'm sensing, honestly, in every conversation I have or everything that I read, uh, I'm sensing uh, more and more people, no matter what side they're on, are actually feeling hopeless. <laughs> for a period of four years, one group of people is feeling hopeless, and then for another four years, 
another group of people is being just, I'm just talking politically, but also in all the other aspects of our world and our life. There's a sense that tomorrow, I think, is less certain in many of our minds than ever before. Oh, we, we, we can try to be people who are a glass half full, and I'm that guy, trust me, I am. But we can try as hard as we can to be those kind of people, but it's hard. It's hard. It's less certain than ever before. And surprise, surprise, the things that we thought we would never see happen are happening. It's reality. Maybe reality television, but it's reality. I think it's fair to say that the root of this sense of hopelessness is that the one thing that our culture today, the, the, the enlightened and materialist mind has depended on, has come to worship the world of facts. The world of facts is becoming incredibly unreliable. Incredibly unreliable. The big hashtag for the, this month, for those of you who are in the know, is hashtag alternative facts. Really. Really. But is this really something that is so new? Really? Is it? I, I think it's not a surprise. Is it, it's been around for a long time. The evolution of fake news and alt facts should not be a surprise to us today. It is really something that has been around since the dawn of time. And it's always been about what we get, what you get, if, first of all, number one, number one, we refuse to take God at his word. That's the first move away. The second is we take God out of the equation altogether and say that he's not involved or does not exist. And finally, we elevate facts over truth, which ultimately leads to truth becoming relative and really, at that point, of no value at all. It's lost, actually. We can't find it. We don't know where it is. So in this day and age, you can have a conversation with someone, and you can actually hear them say, looking you right in your face, on a number of different issues, that there is absolutely no absolute truth. Despite the contradiction in their very statement, you could even point it out to them, and they would still look at you in the face and not even blush or have a conscious reflection. It'd be like, what's the point? There absolutely is no such thing as absolute truth. So how pervasive is this facts alternative problem today? How pervasive do you think it is? Well, very. All you need to do is look at the various forms of media available to us today, and you will see that every area of human concern, there are facts that say one thing, and then there are alt facts, right? A few examples for you, right? I think probably number one would be the environment. I mean, we've been talking about the environment for a number of years now, and there, there are facts that are put before us, apparently, facts, I'm not taking sides here, although I will if you want. There are facts that people put forward, but then, then there are alternative facts. I mean, I, I was with my brother-in-law, and we're talking about the land of hemp, of course, uh, Salt Spring Island, and they're very much into the environment over there, so much so that they don't even have cell towers, because, you know, it, it affects your brain. It's, it's annoying, but... Really, it is. It's hard to be on social media when there's no cell towers. But, but I, I was actually, I showed him a video clip of a fellow who's a scientist, a data guy, and he's actually, he says that the data does not prove that CO2 gases are, and I, I only showed it to him to show th- there's a guy, right? There's somebody saying that. Well, that produced an interesting conversation, to say the least. What about vaccinations? What about flu shots? What about autism? What about health care, Right? Universal, not universal, like facts, alt facts, 
They're everywhere. Politics, of course, is huge. Theology, church doctrine, that's huge. Facts, alt facts. But it extends even to the fact checkers. I remember many years ago being a techie guy in my business life um, that, that I, w- I would see people posting on Facebook or social media. They would post articles, and I, w- I would read it as soon as I saw the headline. As soon as I saw the article, I'd be like, I don't know if that's true. Right? And so back in the day, because I was around back then, uh, I used to go to a site called urbanlegends.com. And, of course, you, you check the facts, right? And, and you typically find out because you, you, you know, you think you know. And, and true enough, it's false. It's a rumor. Or it's an urban legend. Uh, today we call these things mems, right? Um, they're often really no more than rumor or gossip, quite frankly, um, but they're proposed as facts. Well, today we have a, a better site. It's called Snopes.com, right? Anybody here know what Snopes.com? You can go and check these things. You can do that. So that's the most popular. But you'll never guess who the people were who I saw posting on, on blogs and commentaries or on Facebook when it came out, all the rest of it. What group of people were the most that I noticed, maybe because most of them, I have many friends are in that category, were posting these false stories. And, and you know what they would always say at the bottom of their email because the story told you to do it? Pass it on. Share. Right? Who were they? Christians. Christians. It's actually shameful that we do that without checking the facts, but we're guilty of that and we do that. So I don't know if you actually know this, but the result of the recent spate of fake news in our culture and alt news that surrounded the U.S. election, Facebook and Google decided that they were going to partner with Snopes.com to do fact-checking so that stuff wouldn't just be posted on social media and it would go like it's facts and it would be fact-checked. Well, guess what's happened? Does anybody know what's happened? Well, recently, some of the more notable fake news websites are now posting all kinds of articles and stories about the couple who started Snopes.com. And what are they posting? Well, they're going through a bitter divorce. There's some embezzlement and fraud. And also, there's a sexual scandal. Really? Now, who's going to check, fact-check that? And so it gets to the point. I mean, the point is, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to be, believe? And so I hope you see the problem. The problem has slowly become the inevitable erosion of faith in any form of truth. Who are you going to trust? It's hard to have hope when you don't know who to trust, and especially when you come to the hopeless realization that maybe everybody is lying, or at least only saying part of the truth, because that's all they know, because it's been lost so much. Tom Wolfe is a well-known journalist, uh, author in some worlds, <laughs> and uh, he, he was interviewed just recently about this whole fake news issue, and he quoted, uh, uh, as mentioned a man who I actually knew in Toronto, not that, you know, I'm, I'm, that's great that I knew him, but his name was Marshall McLuhan. He was a, a professor at University of Toronto, writer, author, philosopher, and, and his main area of expertise was media, mediums, particularly television and print, and, and its impact on us psychologically and socially. He was brilliant. He was way ahead of his time. And Tom Wolfe had this to say uh, recently about Marshall McLuhan. He said, Marshall McLuhan made a a prediction in 1968. It was like a prophecy. He was one of these guys. It was kind of like Orwell, you know, 1984. And it was the wackiest thing I'd ever heard at the time, but it turned out to be true. He said that the new generation, my generation, people in their 20s, had been raised on television, and it has changed the neural order of their perceptions. It's turned them tribal. 
He was one of the first people to use that language. And then he went on to say, and it's outstripping what journalism used to be. Nothing is checked anymore in those mediums. And so Tom Wolfe says, I'm not surprised that this great moment of fake news has arrived, which I think is a laugh and a half. Well, I don't think so. (laughs) And I don't think God's word thinks so. It's actually pretty sad. And so there's a crisis in our world today. And the crisis is not the environment. That's not the top crisis. That's a crisis, no question. It's an issue. Uh, Although it's not peace, it's not security, and it's not even the economy. It's one word, truth. There's a crisis of truth in our world today. We've lost almost all touch with it, and I use the word touch intentionally, and that's our big takeaway for us today. I know it's rather long today. I like to come up with something that's a little more pithy and short, but I couldn't. I tried. I was up late last night, but this is the best I've come up with, and that is this. Trusting facts may temporarily satisfy your mind. Knowing the truth will touch your heart and set you free forever. Now, at first blush, as we look at our passage here this morning and consider these 10 verses today, you might ask, what did that introduction have to do with this? <laughs> it's a good question. We'll get there. But you must also conclude that there was a time when Paul Barnabas, and Titus, uh, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus traveled to Jerusalem to make sure that the gospel Paul was preaching was the same as the gospel the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching. It was therefore just about unity and making sure they were all on the same page in the church, being on the same page, and a few other important lessons. We could simply outline the message and sermon today this way. Number one, the event. Number two, the parties. And number three, the motive. We could then apply that to meetings of the church and denominations today. Uh, that are the result of questionable teachings or doctrine, uh, discipline issues that are the potential for creating divisions and therefore unity in the church is at stake. That's a good outline. It could be a great sermon. But potentially it misses the big picture. It misses the big picture of what actually happened. There are several keywords. If you have your Bibles open with you, I, I, I do this all the time, and I know some of you are like, my Bible is really, really precious to me. I don't want to mark it up. You should. You should underline and highlight and maybe even circle words, which is why I say to you, you know, bring a Bible, open it up and have it with you. Some of the key words in these verses today that jump out and point us towards that big picture are these. Freedom. Slavery. Truth. Influential is used three times. Influential. Pillars. Entrusted. And the gospel. More than one commentator has said, that I've read, and also I heard this many times. We talked about this many times in in seminary. This meeting that was held over 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem is potentially the most crucial in the history of the church. The most crucial. We just read by it, we read it, we go, okay, interesting, what happened there? A lot of talk about circumcision, and move on, right? It's critically important. If this meeting had not happened and turned out, if it had turned out differently, The church may have been divided in such a way as to have the terrible effect of losing the truth of the gospel altogether. It's that important, this passage that we're reading and learning about today. So your outline for today is is truth or consequences. I'm going to look at four things, the purpose, the presentation, the affirmation, and the resulting unity from it. Let's read again the first two verses. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, 
the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So 14 years has passed. Since Paul first went to Jerusalem, remember he went one other time, we already read about it in the first chapter of Galatians, he went there and he was just there for 15 days. And the whole point of that mention was that when he went there, he really didn't have time to hear any of the apostles' version of the gospel or hear the gospel preached. He, he, he didn't, and his point was, so I didn't get it from man. And he's been saying this all along, that the gospel that I preach, the gospel that I've been preaching that has been bringing people to salvation in Jesus Christ through faith alone in Jesus Christ, I got by revelation of God, not by man. And so he's been planting churches in Galatia and other places. But while in Galatia, he notices that there are what he calls false brothers. Now, that's a really nice English translation uh, of the Greek, which is is more like spies and, and more like unfaithful nasty people. There's really no Greek word that supplies the proper translation, but he calls them false brothers. It's really a harsh term. And they arrive, and he's very concerned to hear what they're saying and preaching. And so we've learned so far in this letter that what they're up to is essentially one thing, which is purely to add to the gospel of grace that Paul has been preaching. The gospel that says it is purely by God's good grace, nothing that you have done or can do, That has saved you. It is by faith alone in Christ alone, not by anything you or I have done, but all through and by the work of Jesus. It's just all a big done. And yet these guys are showing up and and they're saying, they're teaching that faith in Jesus is great and it's awesome and it's wonderful, but guys, we're from Jerusalem. We know the capital A apostles. We've heard their gospel. And and Paul, he's basically preaching easy easy believism. Easy for me to say. There's more to it, guys. We've got the full gospel. Let us tell you what it is. And so it's reached a crisis stage, and that's why Paul needs to go to Jerusalem. And so we we learn two reasons for the trip up to Jerusalem, two reasons that we learn from this passage. First, Paul has heard directly from Jesus. Several times in his letters to the churches, he said, by revelation of Jesus. I heard. Now, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That was a pretty amazing revelation and experience with Jesus. But he heard literally from Christ many other times, he says, and the scripture affirms. He heard this revelation from Jesus to go and to deal with this issue. And so this tells us another important thing. This issue was important to Christ. It was that important to Christ that Paul should leave the ministry of the churches in Galatia and travel all the way to Jerusalem. But there's a a parallel version of this visit found in the book of Acts, which we went through a couple of years ago. And there we learn that the church in Galatia sends Paul. So let me read. I want to read that passage for you, actually. I want to read from Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, you can flip with me. I'm not going to put it up on screen. I'm going to read it. So this is that test where you should have your Bibles open with you. But here's a a parallel version of what actually happened on this visit. And Paul is now remembering to the Galatians. I'm I'm repeating and telling you the story of what happened. Chapter 15, verse 1 says this. And it starts with the men coming down from Judea into the churches in Galatia. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Look at this. You cannot be saved. So they're saying this is a gospel issue. It's not just faith in Jesus. You need to be circumcised men. And 
all the rest of you, you need to follow the Mosaic law and the customs of Moses in order to be saved. So in other words, Gentile Christians, you're not a Christian unless you become a Jew first. That's what they're saying. And after Paul and Barnabas, look at this, had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. i just make this point. There was no small dissension and, and, quite frankly, debate and bickering going on in the church. Now, I know some of you here, you don't like controversy, right? You know, if we ever have a discussion and we get a little bit upset about teaching and doctrine or we maybe even start arguing a little bit at the dinner table, in my house anyway, about this teaching or that teaching or this doctrine or that doctrine, some people are like, oh, guys, come on. We don't really need the controversy. We should maybe settle down a little bit. Well, I just want to point out to you that it happened here. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So on the way to Jerusalem, they're sharing the gospel. On the way to Jerusalem, they're showing them all these examples of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus apart from the teachings of Moses and the law. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, look, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there's a lot more detail, right, that we see here as they arrive in Jerusalem. So first, Paul and Barnabas debated vigorously with these false teachers. Secondly, and this is very important, The church body in Galatia, the churches that they were part of in Galatia, um, they also, and its elders, they also got involved in this. They sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. It was a church decision to do this. So they all got involved. It wasn't just the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church who thought, you know, this is important. You guys really don't need to worry about this. No, everybody was involved, and they affirmed the decision to send them. This is a picture for us, a model of us, for us of how this should work to produce what they eventually get to at the end of this passage, which is unity in the church. So does this mean what we read in Acts that Paul didn't have the revelation? Because that's what it says in Galatians. And that is also one of the arguments that sometimes people make to this passage. Well, not at all. It was that revelation from Jesus Christ that the church was affirming. Paul would have shared that with them. This is important, guys. I've heard from Christ. I've been praying about this. The Holy Spirit has spoken to me. Jesus has spoken to me. This is critical. It needs to be dealt with. So this was his first purpose. Secondly, his second purpose is he's afraid. He's fearful. He's fearful. But for what exactly? Well, probably two things. He's concerned, the Scripture teaches us, for the freedom that the Gentile believers have in Christ, that he's been preaching the gospel to. He's concerned for them that they might lose their freedom in Christ. So that's the first. But secondly, he's also concerned about the unity of the church universal across the known land and in Jerusalem, the home church. He's concerned for that. Paul's fearful for the Jerusalem church, but why? Why would the man who we know as this fearless prosecutor of the church... Be afraid of false, a few false teachers. Well, the truth is this. Nothing was threatening Paul's certainty. Nothing in what was going on was, 
was threatening Paul's certainty about the gospel, about what he'd been preaching, and about the truth. Nothing. But something was threatening his fruitfulness. It's 14 years that I've been preaching the gospel, (laughs) defending the truth, seeing people, lights go on, and people come to faith in Jesus Christ, see people be baptized, see people turn from their previous life and walk in faith with Jesus Christ and be free of their past life and alive in Christ. That's what he's afraid is going to be lost. Not that he's got something wrong. Not at all. Paul is fearful that the gospel might be lost and that all the work that he and the church has done for the past 14 years will be ruined. Absolutely ruined. I would suggest it's the same, and I suggest possibly worse today. If you can imagine. I think it might be worse today. Paul actually warned them and us that it would get worse. Can you imagine? He says later in Acts 20, he says these words. Look, the first words are, I know. It's not like, listen, I'm worried that this might happen. It could happen. I've heard rumors. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men and women, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul, why are you being so scary? (laughs) Paul, why are you being so critical? Why are you even putting it in our minds that at some point in time there might be false teaching? Because he's heard it from Christ to tell the truth and because he knows that this is exactly what's going to happen. He, He has seen the future. Prophecy is what he is making here. And then to Timothy, who's planting and trying to lead a church in Ephesus, he says these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, and he's speaking about not only later in the church in Ephesus, which will eventually die. We were there a couple of years ago. Janice and I were in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, walking around the ruins. And guess what? In Turkey, there's really no Christian witness anymore. Why? Why? they lost the gospel and the truth. And Paul warns about it in 2 Timothy 4, 3, where he says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Serious stuff. And we could say today, well, come on, really? Is that really happening? Uh, you know, it, that sounds, sounds like Paul, you know, worrywart, you know. Well, listen, I I suggest to you today, you can attend a solid Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church, and you can be led away by every wind of doctrine, thanks to social media and blogging and books and authors. You can. That seem right to you or that suit your values. You can. It's the same method, too. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the straw man method. People who appear to be thoughtful and caring Christians are going to suggest to you, yeah, you know, I've been going to your church for a while or, you know, listening to your pastor for a while or your leaders, whatever they might be, you know. And, and, no, I just want to suggest this other author, this other writer, this other blogger, this other podcast preacher, because their message is a a little different. And I think you might just find that it's it's, it's just a fuller gospel. (laughs) It's more inclusive. Sounds good, doesn't it? 
I spoke with a woman on Friday. It happens to me all the time where I'm, I'm preparing messages, and for some reason, God the Holy Spirit just boop, puts things into my place and in front of me. I'm speaking to this woman down at our cafe at the ledge um, on Friday. I know this person, and she was there for a meeting with some people and came in to talk to me because we're friends. We're really good friends. She's an agnostic slash maybe atheist, but, but we love each other, and we give each other a hard time. It's great. And so we're having a little bit of a conversation about things, and I'm sharing a little bit about, with her about this fake news thing and where I'm going on Sunday, trying to tempt her to come, right? Didn't work. But anyway, I, as we're talking, as we're talking, she first of all said to me this. She said, you know, actually, Glenn, before you came here, I have visited most of the other churches in Squamish. And you know, I noticed something. They're all saying something different. They're all saying something different. And not only that, uh, some of them have very distinct things about their church that is not only different, but they read the Bible differently than the other churches in Squamish. How's that possible? (laughs) And then she said this to me. She said, you know, I've actually met people, there's a couple, who used to go to the rock, and they decided to stop going to the rock because they don't agree with your values, my values. It's okay, I'm used to it. (laughs) The person up front is always the one who gets the attack and I just reminded her, well, I, you know, my values, I mean, I just open the Bible and read it and tell people, I think, what it says truthfully and honestly. And by the way, I represent a bunch of elders and also the members of our church. And if I'm wrong or we're wrong, we, we want to go to the Bible and see this. And so this is one of the reasons why I think it's important today to study theology, to actually, on many, many issues, take a stand But we're afraid to, are we not? Why? Well, because of what we learned last week from Paul, fear of man. People might not like us. People will call us names. But the Scripture is the Scripture. In our church planning networks, we talk a lot about, you know, the theology of churches, and we talk about having closed-hand and open-hand theology, right? It's a good concept. The idea is there are certain things that we'll put in here doctrinally, theologically, that are non-negotiables, that will fall on the sword for those things. Jesus died and rose again. Truth. Not going to fudge on that one. Uh, Over here, you know. And we kind of joke about them. Oh, pastor doesn't have to wear a suit and tie. You know, I like that one. It's an open-handed issue. You know, you, you, know, you can have a glass of wine or not. You know, whatever, open-handed issue. But there, it's amazing to me today, as the more you have conversations about that, the number of things people want to, listen to me, listen to me, take out of here and put in here. This hand is getting kind of full, if you ask me. And it's a big question for us today. People will say, well, it's just a gospel issue. If it's not a gospel issue, it doesn't belong in here. It belongs over here. Okay, what in the Word of God that is truth or not truth is a gospel issue or not? That becomes a big thing that we need to figure out. But that's where we're at in our culture today. Paul warned us about this. And that's why this meeting took place. And that's why we're having this conversation here right now on these subjects, because they relate So finally, back in Galatians 2, 1 to 2, we see that Paul says he shared the gospel he was preaching with the church in Jerusalem. Although at first, he privately met with the elders, with the apostles and the elders. He privately met with them, right? And it says the the word influential there. I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to that because he throws that in, the word influential. It's an interesting word. We need to know why he says that. And then he concludes, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so as I've been saying, it would be easy to assume or think he was afraid to be mistaken, but that is not what he's saying. And as I've noted, Paul is fearful that the gospel might, in fact, be lost. It might be lost if this is not dealt with. And all the work that he had done in his church planning for 14 years would be ruined. So that's 
point number one, the purpose, multifaceted purpose for going to Jerusalem. Number two is the presentation. This is great. Verse three says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So in the previous chapter, we heard Paul give his personal testimony. This is the gospel. We learned this last week. This is the gospel that you and I need to go share. What I was like, what my life was like before Jesus Christ. I was a sinner. Here's what was going on in my life. Here's what needed Christ to die on the cross for me. Here's how I came to Jesus. Here's how I heard about him. Here's here's what happened. Here's how I prayed. Here's how I repented. Here's what, what his Holy Spirit revealed to me about the truth of his word, about who I am. And how now I can live because I have Christ. And then what my life has been like since coming to faith in Jesus. He brings Titus. Barnabas, who's a Jew, he brings him with us. He's kind of like his mentor early on. And he brings Titus along with him. And his purpose for doing this was to show that the gospel, listen, of God's good grace had the power to save even the most religious, law-keeping, and murderous Jew, Paul, But it also had the power to save, in the Jewish mind, the lowest of the low, a Gentile. That's how powerful the gospel is. And so, standing in front of the church and the apostles in Jerusalem, Paul puts his exhibit A on display. He says, Titus, give your testimony. And you can just imagine, we don't hear the words, we don't know what Titus actually said, but he did give his testimony. He stands in front of the whole church. He says, hi, I'm Titus. As you can probably tell, I'm not Jewish. They they could tell by just the way people looked in those days, and you can today as well. He said, by the way, uh, I'm I'm a Gentile. I was born not too far from where Paul was born um, uh, in um, Tarsus. And uh, yeah, it was my life when I was a kid, and this is what happened. And then Paul comes to town and just ruined my life. Yeah, totally wrecked my life. Why? Because he told me about Jesus. He told me I was a sinner. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I don't know exactly what he said, but he gave his testimony. And here's the point. The point is he gives his testimony, and everybody who's there who witnesses it, well, not quite everybody, but the elders and the apostles and the believers who are there are like, they're crying. They're like, what a testimony. It's just like our testimony, but it's different because he's a Gentile. But it's his testimony. And so Paul's point to the church and the false teachers is this would have been the perfect opportunity for the church and the apostles to require Titus to become circumcised. But they didn't. They didn't require that. And as we've read from Acts 15, there were Pharisees there who did demand it. But the apostles didn't. You see it here in verses 4 and 5. It says, Yet because of false brothers, look at this, brought secretly in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul's not afraid. (laughs) Fearless. So that, look at this. This is the most important phrase in the whole passage today. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's writing to the churches in Galatia, but this is, this is for you and me here today. 
2,000 years ago, this happened, so what? So the truth of the gospel could be preserved for you and I. This is Paul's synthesis of what we read in Acts 15. And I think we can see the picture this way. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus on the stage in front of the whole Jerusalem church. Paul's sharing about the work in Galatia and other regions. And then he asks Titus to share his testimony. While this is happening, the false brothers are are let in the side door. You know, they've got some plants inside going, yeah, listen, if we come in the front door, they're going to know who we are. We're Pharisees. We're false brothers. Not really a nice phrase. So you got to let, you got to sneak us in the back door. And that's what they do. They bring them in, and Paul puts it, to spy on our freedom. They want to come in, and they want to listen to the true gospel, and they want to find ways to crack it. They want to spy on the freedom so that they can, they can say, well, just a second, Moses, and well, Elijah, and, you know, no, they, they want to spy on their freedom so they can tear it all down. It's very sad. This is exactly, quite frankly, what Satan does. <laughs> he hates us. He hates Jesus. He hates you and I. And why? Because of our freedom from his power, from the power over sin in our lives. He hates it. He hates the gospel. Hates it. And he hates the fact that our freedom that we have is now that freedom to live fully for Christ today and for eternity with him. Hates it. Sadly as well. Listen, that is what the false brothers, Pharisees, legalists, also hate. And why would they hate this kind of freedom? Why would they hate that? Because they actually love the law. <laughs> they actually love... They, they, listen, God, you gave us Ten Commandments. You gave me a bunch of rules to keep. This is awesome. This means I can prove to you that I'm good enough. That's why people hate the true gospel. It's because they love the law. They love rules and regs. They, they love the idea that I can earn my own salvation. I can earn acceptance and approval with God. And that's why they hate the gospel. Paul says they want to bring us back into slavery, guys, because that's what it really is. It's slavery and bondage. And the other reason why they they love this is power. They love the power that, that comes from this. Being having people under the idea of rules and regs and laws, Jesus plus. Oh, that's good, man. I, we can control people. That's the reason why a lot of people in our world today who don't understand the gospel and Christianity think it's all about bad religion. I'm with them. That's bad religion. Amen? Hello? Are we still here? It's good. Point number three, the affirmation. In verse six says this, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. This is a very bold statement that he's making, and it's kind of, it's almost a little bit arrogant and sarcastic. I want to show you that. Scholars also agree that these verses, verses 6 through 8, we're going to read 7 and 8 in a second, are very difficult to translate in the Greek to English. Some of the arguments are that that Paul at this point is angry. He's preaching angry here. He's now getting really upset. And and so he's writing in, in... in broken sentences. They're not in order, the half sentences, and then jumps to the next thing. It's why when you're reading these passages, you see a lot of the parentheses, right? It's because the translators are trying to put it together for us so that we can get a, a gist of what was happening here. And so this is what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to get, so Paul first is a bit angry, and again, he's, he's frustrated. And secondly, 
as I've said, he's being a little sarcastic. He's angry because after all the debates back home in the church with these Judaizers and the long trip to Jerusalem, this was not an easy trip to Jerusalem, and after all is said and done, nothing about what he was doing and preaching has changed. It's a lot of effort that he's gone to, and yet it's frustrating to him, right? I can understand that. I really can. Nothing has been added to the gospel. But secondly, he uses the word, look at this, influential twice. And then in verse 9, those who seem to be pillars. And he uses these words, commentators agree, a bit sarcastically. Now, why would he be doing that? Why would he be showing disrespect to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem? He's not. He's not at all. In fact, they never, ever presented themselves as, well, Paul, we want you to know that we have great influence and that we are the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. They never said that. The Judaizers who came to Galatia were saying that. They were coming down to Galatia, to the churches in Galatia, and saying, oh, you know, it's Paul. It's Paul's a really good guy, yeah. He's kind of a wayward Jew, uh, got turned around by Jesus. That's wonderful. But, you know, we know the influential apostles. We know the capital A guys. We know the pillars. We stood beside them. We are just like them. We've got the truth. This is why Paul is saying this as he writes back, because here's what's going to happen. He knows that this letter is going to go back into the churches in Galatia, and guess who's going to read it? Not just the believers in Galatia, but the false brothers. The Pharisees are going to read this, and they're going to know exactly who he's writing to and what he's writing about. This, again, is what those who attempt to discredit Paul and every other preacher today continue to do. They continue to do this. Well, let me, let me quote this esteemed and respected and better-lettered theologian who will prove that what you just heard in your sermon at church this Sunday is not correct. <laughs> it's exactly what happens today. It's exactly the same thing. Paul says, God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't have favorites. They never put themselves up on a pedestal. You did that. They lift up the name of Jesus and his word, period. Galatians 7 and 8, he goes on to say this. On the contrary, when they saw, look at this, that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, to the circumcised worked also through me, for mine to the Gentiles. Again, it's a jumble of Greek words. They're putting it together so that we get some of the gist. And so the gospel that Paul has been preaching is affirmed, we see here, by the apostles and the elders. And look, so is his calling. This is so great. I mean, you might even be a little confused here. You might read this, and some people have, and said, well, actually, it looks like there are two Gospels. <laughs> there's the Gospel for the Jews, the circumcised, and there's the Gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, there is one Gospel, the Gospel. There's a definite article there. But the big word, the most important word in that passage is the word two. Two. Paul has been called specifically by the Holy Spirit of God to go to the Gentile people with the gospel. Peter has been called to go to the Jewish people, which is really ironic. Paul was the 
Pharisee of the Pharisees, the, you know, like the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's the one you would think would want to go back. And, and Peter was like a, a lowly fisherman within Jewish culture. He was considered like, I, I won't even try to relate it to a, a job today because some of you might have it. Um, <laughs> but it's pretty low, okay? Like below minimum wage, okay? Um, they're called to this. Friends, that's what happens today. That's what I had to go through a full assessment thing and everything, and, and, and so that people who were going to send me to plant a church here in Squamish, send us, our family, wanted to be assured that there was a legitimate call by God, that you were called specifically to that people and place. And that's how God works in our culture and our world today. And it's also through this affirmation. The church should affirm that. It, whenever I hear somebody say, I'm called to go so-and-so place, I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> Tell me how God called you to that people in that place. I'd like to hear that. And, and, and then if I hear it and a bunch of other people in the church hear it and we think about it and pray about it and it's affirmed by the church that you're actually called to that people in place, you better go. That's how it's supposed to actually work. So this calling is affirmed by the local church. This was a tough meet, meeting. Really, it was. And Paul may have been frustrated and even felt like it was a bit of a waste of time and effort. The truth is, this is exactly what needed to happen in order to produce what the Holy Spirit wants for the church. One word. Unity. Amen? Unity. That's our point number four, the unity. Nine and ten says, And when James and Cephas, which is Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So, as I've said, this was no easy trip for Paul and for Barnabas and Titus. Besides the distance traveled, there was a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, controversies, difficult, debating with people over theology and what the gospel is and what's right for us as men and women and for the church and so forth. It's, it's, there's tension in it. And it was very difficult for them. A lot was at stake. But it was all worth it, wasn't it? It was all very much worth it. Paul fought bitterly to protect the integrity of the gospel for the church in that day. And as I've already said, he says in the end of verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and for me. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding him. Friends, I, I, I want us to understand this. We stand on the shoulders in the church today. We stand on the shoulders of men and women who have been willing to fight for the gospel in the past. We should honor and respect them. We should be thankful for them. We really should. The result done well and in the spirit is what we should be willing to debate and fight for, and that is unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was well established and, and, and well accomplished here, I would suggest. The right hand of fellowship here, by the way, means more than a simple handshake like we have in our culture today. This was a covenant bond. This was a ceremonial, we're, we're in covenant with you. This is like till death do us part. We agree on this issue for, from this day forward and through eternity. We will not change our minds and go back on this decision today. The right hand of fellowship that was extended to Paul and Barnabas. It's important. It's about unity at all costs. So one last point before I conclude is this. Remembering the poor, by the way, that's mentioned here. This is not about uh, what a lot of people do with that passage today. It's not about a social gospel. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. We should care about the poor. Yes. We should care about refugees. Yes. We should. But that's not what this is about here. It's actually, from the Jerusalem church, a request for help. You see, the Jerusalem church was poor, dirt poor. Gentile churches, by comparison, were very, very rich. In Acts 24, you're going to read about Paul doing a collection, visiting all the churches in Galatia and over in Corinth and back into Ephesus and all these different places. And what's he doing? He's collecting. He's asking, listen, you better have the offering available when I come to those churches because I'm going to take up a collection to take to the poor church in Jerusalem. And that's what he's being asked to do. So today, in conclusion, many say to have unity, we need to have a more open-handed approach. It's called in our world today the ecumenical approach which is more about unifying around a limited set of facts and teachings. The essentials, they're called. But we can differ on the non-essentials, they say. Friends, the problem then is who decides what the essentials or non-essentials are? And how do we find agreement on these things? The answer, the truth of the gospel. It's not a simple answer, but that is the answer. And there it is. And, and better said, there he is, right? There he is. The truth is not a set of facts about Jesus or what he did. You can believe in the facts about Jesus and what he did and not be saved. The truth is him. It's embodied in a person. He is the truth in every, every possible way. He is the Word of God. His truth is revealed right here in the Word of God. All of it, right here, in this simulated leather-bound book called the Bible. It's all in here. Every bit of truth that we need to know in this world today for every... So let's reflect. Listen, what I want, I want to ask you to do in Missional Community Group this week is reflect on this passage, what has been said, what it means, what it means to facts and fake news and everything here today, but reflect on his words about himself, would you please, this week. Not my words, but his own words about himself. Jesus said, you all know these words, but just reflect on them from this passage today one more time with me as we close. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way. Not a way, one way, a way you might find easier. No. The way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then back in John 8, 31 to 32, he says this. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And look, not might, maybe, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Trusting facts may temporarily satisfy your mind. Knowing the truth, the person of the truth, will touch your heart, and it'll set you free forever. Amen? Pray with me, would you?